are going to help get ready for the dinner. Otherwise, a fellow could get a complex when he stands up to preach and everybody gets up and walks out. (laughs) Years ago, I read a book called Everything You Need to Know About Fat Loss by a personal trainer and nutritionist named Chris Aceto. And in the book, Aceto says that one of the main mistakes people make when trying to lose weight is that they just stop eating. Now, obviously, you lose weight when you stop eating. This is not sustainable because you have to eat. Eventually, hunger overtakes your willpower and you eat. But not only do you eat, you overeat. Before long, you regain all the weight you lost and then some. He explains that the key to weight loss is not, or isn't not eating, but it's replacement. You replace unhealthy foods with healthy foods. You replace inactivity with activity. And he's exactly right. Now, what is true in the natural realm is also true in the spiritual realm. So often when we try to live for Christ, we focus on don't sin or do better. But what does that even look like? I mean, how do we, what does it look like to not sin or just to do better than what we currently are? Since we don't have a clear idea of what that looks like, it's hard to gauge success in not sinning or doing better. And in the end, this leads to failure for a couple of reasons. First is on our own, we can't just do better. Right? While the human will is strong, the sinful nature is stronger. More often than not, we end up like the person who tried to lose weight by not eating. We not only indulge in our sin, but we overindulge and end up in worse shape than when we began. Secondly, it's not enough to take something out because that just leaves a hole in our lives. We must not only take something bad out, but we must put something good in its place. It's the principle of replacement. How do we do this? What does it look like? It's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 is where we're starting. It's page 897 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 4, starting in 22. That you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man, which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil." Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to those who have need. Let let, let no corrupt word come out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The title of the message this morning is Transformed Character, Living Like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today and we bow in your presence and we desire you above all else. Father, we want to live the way Jesus would have us to live. We want to be transformed in our lives. God, we need you to work, to strengthen us, to guide us, to make this possible. I ask you today to fill me with the Holy Spirit. Guide me as I speak that I have clarity of thought and clarity of speech and I can speak your words and your ways and not be a hindrance at all to what you want done in our lives. Use this word to speak to all of us. Help our hearts to be open, surrendered to you, that we could make the changes you'd want us to make. Let us be transformed and become more and more like Jesus, I ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. And when you look at verses 22, 23, and 24, you see a contrast is being made. Verse 23, or 22, we're told to, to put off. The old man, right? The, the former conduct, the way that we used to live. Now, the former conduct of the old man is basically what we looked at last week in verse 17, 18, and 19. Right? Uh, and the futility of the mind, understanding, darkened, being past feeling. Right? And that's the way that we all are naturally apart from Jesus Christ. But then we met Jesus and everything changed. But the old man didn't suddenly go away. The old man is still there and is still struggling to come out. And so what we have to do is we have to put forth the effort to, to take it off. In fact, the imagery of put off is almost like changing clothes. Taking off dirty clothes to put on clean clothes. Now, the reason we're to do it is... 
then it says it, it grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. And that's an important concept. Right? The idea is the old man or the old way of life is not just suddenly going to go away. Right? We're not going to passively sit by as we struggle with our sinful nature, go to sleep one night, wake up the next day, and it's all better, and it's all gone away. Instead, if we are passive about it, it will get stronger, and it will get worse, and it will control more and more of our lives. So the way that we overcome that and keep that from happening is we put forth the effort to take it off. We put off the old man. In verse 23, he says that we do this because we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. Right Before we were saved... We thought these things were okay. We thought that was the way to live, that there was nothing in the world wrong with it. We met Jesus. He began to work in our minds and to show us that things that we thought were right were wrong. Things that we thought were wrong were right. Our minds are renewed. We see things differently. So we put forth the effort to take off the old. But we don't just take off the old. It's not enough to stop doing something. We have to start doing something else. We have to have the, the, the principle of replacement. We replace the old with the new. In verse 24, put on the new man, which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the, what we're to put on the new man, we're to put on this new nature is going to make us more and more like Jesus. Right? It is true, it is righteous, and it is holy. And what happens is, as we take off sinful habits and actions and attitudes, we replace them with Christ-like habits and attitudes and actions. And this is what transformation is. Transformation isn't that we stop doing something. It's that we stop doing it and we replaced it with something else. Something that is good, that is true and righteous. And so the main idea today is that transformation occurs when sinful habits, attitudes, and actions are replaced with Christ-like habits, attitudes, and actions. Transformation occurs when sinful habits, attitudes, and actions are replaced with Christ-like habits, attitudes, and actions. In verses 23 through 32, or 25 through 32, show us what needs to be replaced. What we're to put off, what we're to put on. So that's what we're going to look at. There's five, five ways we need to, make, to put this into practice. Number one, replace lies with the truth. He said, therefore, put away lying. Right, so that's what we're to take off. And really, when you look at this, this whole passage is just like verses 22 through 24. Put off and put on. You put away lying, and then you put something else on with it. Now, lying is kind of a, a big thing, right? It's something that most people do. It's something that most in our culture think is acceptable. Uh, I read a study, and it was old, so I didn't... Uh, think about it much, but it was like in the 80s. But in the 80s, there was something like 51% of Americans polled thought that lying was basically okay. Now, I'm just going to guess that from 1986 when this study was done to 2015 when we live today, I don't think that number has gone down any. In fact, I would say if anything, it's gone, it's gone up. And, and I think we see the fact that we expect it to be okay in various ways. I mean, let me ask you, again, political season's coming up, and each side is promising a turkey in every pot. Now, raise your hand if you really believe either side is going to follow through on what they've said. Good deal. I like having people that aren't, that are smart. Um, we don't expect, we don't even expect it, do we? Right? If they actually do it, we're like, hey, what do you know? Right? We don't expect it. Now, why? There's a lot of ways that we can lie, right? Think about this. Right? One way is exaggeration. Right? If you're a fisherman, you probably know what this is. It's this big. Right? I caught a fish that was that big. Right? We, we make it sound better than it actually was. There's flattery. Now, flattery isn't just being nice. There's a difference between being nice to someone and saying, hey, you look good, when we really don't think that they do, and flattery. I think flattery in my mind is the idea of you're trying to butter them up for something, right? You want something from them, so you flatter them, right? And that's, again, politicians. That's kind of what they excel at. Cheating, right? Cheating is lying. You're passing off someone else's work as your work. You're saying, I did this when someone else did it. That's a lie. 
a spin. Right? This is the political world. Right? You, you spin everything to get the best possible result from it. Right? You, here's what happened, but it's not the way it looks. Here's what really happened and why it's all okay. A half lie. You say, but I thought that was a half truth. No, calling it a half truth is a spin. It's really a half lie. Right? You tell part of the truth for one reason or another. An excuse. An excuse isn't a reason we weren't able to do something. Right? I wanted to come, but I had a flat tire. That's not an excuse. That's a reason. An excuse is when you make something up so that you don't have to be accountable for it. It wasn't my fault. I didn't hit her that hard. I, I really intended to be there, but my alarm didn't go off. Right? You're making an excuse as to why you didn't do something. You never intended to do it, but you don't want to admit that you didn't do it. Hypocrisy. But a hypocrite is an actor. Hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one thing while they're really something else. Hypocrisy is basically a lie. I want you to think I'm one way, but deep down I'm something totally different and have no intention of being what I want you to think that I am. I'm trying to, to lie. And then a white lie, an innocent little lie that's not that big of a deal. right? It's maybe often seen as, as good for the hearer that, that we've told it. And all of these things, and probably more, are lying. And the things that we are to, to put away from ourselves, to take off. And we say, well, why, why is lying? Because that kind of starts the list. Why is lying that big of a deal? Everybody does it. It's such a, a common thing in our culture. And I think we, we understand the importance of lying when we see how God sees it. Look at what Jesus said. You're of your father the devil... The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar, the father of it. See, lies are the, the language of Satan. And when we lie, we are speaking much more his language than God's language. We are doing much more of what he would have us do than what God would have us to do. So, that's what we're to take off. What are we to put on? We are to put on truth with his neighbors. Right? We are to speak truthful to one another. And we're to be truthful with one another because we're members of one another. Right? We're, I think, in part, Paul is talking to the Ephesians as a church, primarily. You're, you're all part of one family, one body. Be truthful together. Right? Because truth, truth may be difficult to deal with at times, but it always kind of unites us. Right? It keeps, keeps us together. You know, if someone says something to me that I don't like, but it's true. Now, I may get mad at them at the present. But if it's true, and if I'm a grown-up, and I've got my big boy shorts on, and I'm thinking through it, I'll get over it because it's the true. But do you know what makes it hard to get over? If someone lies to me, and I believe the lie, and then I later find out I've been lied to. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time... Getting over that. Right? I think about it in like, we have people that come in and ask for help from the church. And, and we almost always help if we can. If there's any way we can, we do what we can. But I've had people come in and tell these outrageous stories. Aliens attack me and burn my house down. And, and I mean, just, and I think, I don't, I am more insulted that you think I'm dumb enough to believe this than I am anything else. Lying, it always causes issues. I mean, eventually it gets found out. And man, the strife, the heartache, the problems that it causes. So because we are one body and one family, we are to be truthful to one another. Now, what's true within the church is true within our homes. There is no relationship in your house that will be strengthened and bettered through lying. Your relationship with your spouse needs to be built on truth. When that truth is lost, it is hard to get trust back. It is easier to deal with the fallout of the truth than it is to rebuild after a lie. Relationship with our kids needs to be built on truth. Because again, the same thing. It is easier to deal with the fallout of truth than to rebuild after a lie. And when we think about it like this, we understand that truth is very, very important. 
And since we're trying to be conformed to the image of Christ, we want to be truthful because because Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth and the life. Not only is Jesus truth, but God's word is truth. And the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. So when I I lie, I am not showing forth the, the Savior that has redeemed me. I am not living according to the book that guides me. And I'm not following the Spirit that fills me. If I want to be transformed, then I need to replace the sinful habit, attitude, and action of lying and replace it with truth. This is how transformation happens. Secondly, replace anger with forgiveness. Right, replace anger with forgiveness. Now, anger must be important because it's mentioned in two different places. One, notice in verse 26. Be angry, do not sin. Not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, all kinds of the various forms of anger that are mentioned here. Bitterness. But bitterness is when you you harbor something against someone. Right? You they've maybe offended you or they've done something to you or you think they have and because of that you've got something built up in your heart against them. Right? And you can't stand them and you can't deal with them and you can't look at them and if they're mentioned in a positive way your greatest desire above all is to tell people who they really are. You are bitter towards them. Right? Wrath, or, or it's basically outbursts of anger, right? It's different. There's one thing to be angry, then there's a way to act in your anger. Outbursts, wrath is are these outbursts of anger that you blow up and you may act violently or you may scream and cuss or whatever. You may throw things or kick things or whatever, but you are, your anger explodes out of your body. There is clamor. And clamor, let me look at what I've said here, because the New King James word clamor doesn't really come through all that much, is harsh words. Right? It's a loud statements of angry people determined to make sure everyone knows how they feel. Right? So clamor is when you're angry and you want everyone to know that you're angry. Who do they think they are? Right? We... We're loud, we're obnoxious, we're making sure everyone knows exactly how we feel. I skipped the word anger in that passage. And anger there, it refers to just keeping it bottled up and keeping it there. It's always boiling under the surface. Right? There's always a, just a sense in which you're ticked off at the world. Um, evil speaking. Right? Evil speaking is, is speaking against people. Talking bad about them. Right? You're angry at them, so you're going to tell everybody how you feel about them and what they're like. You're going to tell them what they've done. You're, going to, you're just going to tell, maybe you're just going to tell them off. But either way, it, your anger is coming out of your mouth. And then, there is malice. Malice carries with it the idea of wanting to do harm. Now, malice doesn't have to be physical, but it can be. Malice could be, I'm angry, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a beat down that you deserve. That's malice. I want to hurt you. But malice could also be something that's done with our words. Right? Scott has become friends with Bridge, but I know how Bridge really is. So I want to hurt this relationship, or I want to hurt, so I will say bad things about Bridge to Scott in an effort to hurt Bridge. Or perhaps I'll say things about Bridge that's loud enough for him to hear. Right? We're in the same room, and I'll be like, blah, 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 so that he overhears the conversation. Or, or I'll say something to their boss in an effort to keep them from getting promoted. Say something to their wife to hurt their marriage. And, all, and however it is, it is whatever I do or whatever I say, it is done with the clear intent of hurting and not helping. That is malice. Now, one of the things we have to notice 
about the danger of anger and why we're to put it away. That we are not to give place to the devil. The New Living Translation, I believe, says, For anger gives the devil a mighty foothold in your life. Think about that. This unresolved anger that we hold on to. It doesn't just stay with anger. It gives Satan a, a foothold in our lives to do other things. And I think of a foothold like I think of the way we got footholds in the army. When you do trench warfare, you can't clear the whole trench at once, so you get a, a foothold. right? And so you do what you can to get to clear one episode of the trench from this wall to that wall. But the goal isn't to hold this wall to that wall. The goal is eventually to take the whole trench and kill everybody that's in there. So you use this foothold as a launching point to clear the rest of the trench and kill everybody else that's in there. And when you think about it like that, that's what Satan wants to do with anger in our lives. He gets a foothold in anger. He's not going to be content to just keep us angry at one person or one group of people or one situation. That spreads. It it, it spreads out through all areas of our lives. Eventually, we are doing all sorts of evil, wicked, wrong things in our anger, and we feel justified because we're mad. Anger gives the devil a mighty foothold in our lives, and so we must put it off. And what do we put on in its stead? Well, first I think we put on self-control. Because notice it says, be angry and do not sin. Now, the Bible doesn't say don't get angry. Instead, the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. There are some things that I think we ought to get angry over. There is a righteous anger that believers can have. Jesus expressed a righteous anger when he turned over the money changers table. We see it in various places. But let's be honest. Because somebody cut us off in traffic or they've got 20 items in the 10 item or less line, those are not righteous angers. But even in our righteous anger... How we act matters. And there's also, I think there are times where we can't help but get angry. You know, I don't know, maybe you're different than I am. But there are things that can be said or things that can be done. And I feel my face flush. I feel anger rise within me. Right? It can, it can get to the point where I, I'm just literally shaking. I'm so mad at everything. And I can't, I can't just suddenly say, Don't be angry. That doesn't work. That makes me angry when somebody says don't be angry when I feel like that. Right? But what I can do is refuse to act in that anger. Because in that moment, in that situation, I have never done anything right. In that intense level of anger, I have never said one right thing that helped anything at all. I have never acted in one right way when anger was guiding me and controlling me. Be angry, but do not sin. But the anger mentioned here also, I think it largely includes what people have done to us. So what else are we to put on besides self-control? Forgiveness. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We are to forgive others. And that's, I mean, that's tough. The bigger the issue that's been done to us, the harder it is to forgive. And the Bible never acts like our issues aren't real. It never acts like the reasons we're holding a grudge, we're bitter, we're angry, aren't bad and they weren't a problem. But it still says we are to forgive And it tells us why we're to forgive. We're to do it in the same way that God in Christ has forgiven us. See, we don't forgive because they deserve forgiveness. We don't forgive, I don't even think, because they've asked for forgiveness. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We have experienced the grace and the mercy of Almighty God because of Jesus Christ. We then give grace and mercy to others through Christ to others. We forgive them. We make a choice to let it go. The thing is, holding a grudge, not giving forgiveness, 
You know the reality of what I have found in my life? Forgiving others, it really doesn't mean anything to them. Many of the times the people I'm harboring issues about, they have no idea. No idea I've got things against them. When I forgive them, they could care less. If I were to walk up to them and say, I forgive you, they would say, for what? I don't care. Do you know who gets freed when we forgive others? We do. One guy has said, holding a grudge is like drinking poison expecting someone else to die. It it disrupts our relationship with God. It affects all of our lives. When we let go, all of that's gone. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but forgiveness isn't easy. And it's not going to be like you say, I choose to forgive and therefore it's all said and done. I don't think. I think it takes time. I think there has to be a willingness where we say to God, I want to forgive them because you want me to. Help me to forgive them. I think in that moment we find that his grace is sufficient and we can forgive, move on and let it go. We put off, we replace anger with forgiveness. And in replacing the sinful habit and attitude and action of anger with self-control and forgiveness, we are transformed. Thirdly, replace stealing with generosity. So let him who stole steal no more. Now, stealing was a big issue in this day. And it's a big issue in ours, but in our day, it's, it's a bit different. Right? In Paul's day, they stole tangible items. Cows, ox, some situations, wives and families. Right? They, they stole things where you could catch them and you could say, that is my iPad. That is, that is my cow. You have my wife. You have my kids, whatever. You could say it. But in our day, with technology and things, Stealing is, is often not as tangible, right? Because credit card numbers can be stolen. And identities can be stolen. And all kinds of, of other things that you can't just hold and say this is there, they can be stolen. So one of the guys I, I read, he, may, he showed some things that are common in our day as cows were in Paul's day. That are things that are intangible. Things like, like time theft. Not like you, you steal from your boss by not doing the job you're supposed to do. You come in late, but act like you were there on time. You eat lunch at your desk and then still take a lunch hour. You Facebook when you're supposed to be inputting data. Right? You spend too much time the water fountain talking to others. You, you steal time. You, they pay you. For time you didn't work, right? That, that was not a part of your natural agreement. Time theft. There would be tax theft, right? Lying on our taxes to get back something that we feel that we owe. Not paying what we're supposed to pay. That's, that's a type of theft. Now, some would say that's not a big deal, but let's not forget that Jesus said we're to, when it comes to taxes, we're to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? And then there, there would be debt theft. Debt theft is when you. Run up a bill, but you don't actually pay it. You know, we would, I think we can see that debt theft is kind of similar to to having our wages stolen. Right? Let's say I went to work for Jeff. And Jeff agreed to pay me $5 an hour to come and do something at his house, to mow his lawn. And at the end of the time I mowed and I spent two hours mowing his lawn, he said, I'll pay you tomorrow. And tomorrow he said, I'll pay you the next day. And this goes on over and over and over again. And he never really has. Any, and then finally he just stops answering my calls and stops coming to church and avoids me. And, you know, all the moves houses and just doesn't has no intention of paying me. Now, if somebody did that to you, would you say they stole from you? That that was that was a type of stealing? Sure, you would. In a similar way to run up a debt that I have no intention of paying off. It's theft. It, it is a a debt theft. Right. And these are various ways that I, I think I mentioned these rather than just take something out of somebody's house, because I mean, hopefully none of us are like robbing people. You know, I mean, you didn't come to church this morning after breaking and entering last night. I mean, if you did repent and believe in Jesus and you too shall be saved. But but chances are that's not a 
a big problem here. But things like this are far more of an, an issue and it's still kind of theft. So what are we to do? We are to, to, to put off thieving and we are to put on generosity. Now, as I was thinking about this, I think the root of, genero- the root of theft is really greed and covetousness, right? I mean, I want something someone else has, but I don't want to work for it. And I don't want to try to earn it myself. I just, I want it, so I'm going to take it. There's, there's a greed there. There's a covetousness there. And the way that we overcome greed and covetousness is through generosity. Right? We, we put forth the effort to, to show that money doesn't have any, doesn't have control over us by being generous, by getting rid. I mean, by using our money to help others and to do good. Uh, According to the Bible, we are not supposed to just enrich ourselves. We are to do what we can to help others. I mean, that's what he says here. Rather than stealing, you labor with your hands, right? You earn your own money for the what reason? That you may have something to give to those in need. Generosity is meant to be a Christian grace. It is meant to be something all Christians excel at. Let me show you this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Should just be back a few pages from Ephesians. There's several things to notice from Second Corinthians eight, these first uh, nine verses or so. First thing is to notice the example of the Macedonian church. It said, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty abounded, the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they, they were freely willing, imploring with us much urgency that we would receive the gift and their fellowship in the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now, there's a lot about their example that we need to see first. We have to notice the the situation in which they gave. They gave to help believers in Jerusalem and Judea that were suffering. Their giving did not come out of their abundance. Instead, verses 2 and 3, it says their giving came out of their their affliction and out of their deep poverty. So this wasn't the rich church giving money to help others. This was a a poor church, a suffering church, people who likely did not have enough themselves. And yet, despite that, they were still generous and they gave to help others. Right. And they they gave beyond their ability. Verse three, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond they were freely willing. And the idea of giving beyond their ability means that they didn't just give what was comfortable. They they gave to a point that it was uncomfortable. They gave to a point that really, and I mean, if you really want to get down to what that means, they gave so much, they weren't sure how they would end up paying their bills this week. They, they gave so that they, they gave up something that they felt they needed so that they could help others. And they were freely willing. Not just that they want to, they implored, they begged to get to take part in it. It seems from this that because of their poverty, Paul was like, you guys, you guys don't. You have your own problems and your own issues. You let us take care of it and we'll just be blessed that you tried. And they said, no, please. We know we don't have a lot, but we want to give what we can. They gave out of their deep poverty. But notice why they did it in verse 5. And not only, as we had hoped, they gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. See, their, their act of generosity was because they had been transformed. They had met Jesus and everything changed. And now because they had met Jesus, the priorities were different. Their attitude was different. They would now give like Jesus had given. Verse 7, we see that, that every believer is meant to abound in this grace. 
But as you abound in everything, in speech and knowledge and diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. This grace is the grace of giving, the grace of generosity. Right? As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not just supposed to want to be, have the ability to speak or to, to help or to do things. We are to want to be able to grow in the grace of giving and of generosity. And the reason we do this in verse 9 is because of what Jesus has done. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Right? Jesus gave up the glories of heaven to come to earth to die for our sins so that we could be saved. He gave up the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth so that we could have the riches of heaven someday ourselves. And as we are generous, we are following his example. Right? It is a... It is a radically different way of living. It is a radically different way of thinking. It is a transformed mind that produces a transformed life. We are to live as Jesus lived. Jesus was generous. We are to be generous. So we we put off theft. We put off greed. We put off covetousness. And we replace that with generosity. And as we... Replace, go ahead and turn back to Ephesians 4. And as we replace theft and greed with generosity, that's how transformation happens in our lives. Fourthly, replace corrupt speech with helpful speech. But he says in verse 29, let no corrupt speech, corrupt word, Proceed out of your mouth. Now, corrupt speech is a broad category. Uh, It covers things like profanity. It covers things like crude and perverse jokes. But it also covers the way we talk about other people. It talks about, it covers the way we, we interact with others, the way we speak about others. Right? And let me show you this in James. Turn to James chapter 3. James 3, just start at verse 2. I like verse 2 of James 3 because... James knows the struggle of keeping your mouth under control. If we all stumble in many many things, amen? We all stumble in many things, yes. But if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. And what James basically says is, we all mess up in a lot of different ways. But man, if we can control the mouth, we will control everything else. If we can control how we speak, we will be saying things out loud. Right? In the army, I was a pretty decent soldier. I spent more time getting yelled at and cussed at and screamed at and pushing and crawling for saying things and then thinking about it than I had did anything else. It's a difficult thing to control for me. Now, maybe it's not for you. But again, what I know from my time with my mouth is it causes more trouble than anything. Jokes at the wrong time can hurt feelings that can't be repaired. Telling stories that, that shouldn't be told violate confidence. Laughing at the wrong thing at the wrong time can hurt others. Our mouths can cause all kinds of problems. But not just accidentally, but our our mouths can do this on purpose, right? Because look at what he says in verse 9. For with it, we bless our God and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God, or made in His image. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. How many times? Not just we've accidentally messed up with our mouth, but we came to church and we sang, oh, how I love Jesus. And then we left and we ran down people, maybe that were at church. 
Or we went to a restaurant and we saw somebody and we talked bad about them. Right? We, we just, rah, 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 rah. We, as Galatians says, we, we bit and devoured them. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. The way we talk is important because it reveals what's in our heart. Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 11. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same spring? The same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grape vine bear figs? No, the spring, thus no spring yields both salt and fresh water. Right? Jesus would go on and say in Matthew 13 that what comes out of our mouth... It's a reflection of what's in our heart. So the way we talk matters. Not because the words are so important themselves, but because they reveal something about us. They reveal our character. They reveal our nature. They reveal whether we are walking in the old way of life or we are walking in the new way of life. I mean, look at just some of what Proverbs has to say about how we talk. A person's words can be a life-giving water. Words of true wisdom are as refreshing as a bubbling brook. I mean, think about that. The words that we say can be refreshing and helpful to those who hear them. The lips of the righteous know what's acceptable. The mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. From a wise mind comes wise speech. The words of the wise are persuasive. Kind words are like honey. Sweet to the soul, healthy for the body. Our words have an impact on those who hear them. So we are to to put off the old. Put off all corrupt communication out of our mouths. And we are to replace it with what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Right? We are to think and then speak so that what we say is good and helpful. Right? And, and you're probably familiar with the acronym THINK in relation to speak. But let me just kind of take some time and go over as we Before we say something, right? and this requires us to advance practice, before we say something, we ask, is it, is it true? Right? I mean, just because we heard it, doesn't mean it's true, right? I mean, I think recently we've all kind of learned that just because the news reports it doesn't mean it's actually what happened, right? Just because it made it to Facebook doesn't mean it really happened that way. So before we go out and say something and repeat something, ask, is, is it really true? And you know, the honest fact is, if I don't know if it's true, I probably shouldn't repeat it. I probably shouldn't tell someone if I'm not sure. Is it, is it helpful? You know, just because something is true doesn't mean it's helpful. You may think I look stupid in what I'm wearing. But just telling me, I really honestly, truly think you look stupid today. Not very helpful in life. right? It, it doesn't fix anything. Is it helpful? You know, the idea of if you can criticize, but criticism that doesn't reveal a solution is useless. Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? I mean, will it, will it make their day better? Will it make their life better? Will it help them in any way be a better person? Is it necessary? Now, let me just camp out on this for a minute. Does it really need to be said? Because I want to tell you something. And, and I know some of you are not going to believe this, but I just want you to listen carefully. Your head will not explode if you don't say everything that comes into your mind. I promise Right. I checked on the Internet this morning. I googled. Google knows everything. There are no cases of heads exploding because someone refused to say something. It's just not there. Right. Is it necessary? If you don't have to say it, don't say it. Is it kind? I mean, even if it's true and you have to say it, there are there are good ways to say it. Right. I mean, there are ways to say it that's, that's kind and helpful and, and doesn't beat people down. Now, some would say, man, if I did all that before I spoke, I'd never say anything. Well, maybe that's the way things ought to be for you, you know. 
I mean, there's, there's just some people that probably shouldn't talk as much as they do. Let me read you a poem I read called The Wrecking Crew. I stood on the street in a busy town and watched men tearing a building down. With a whole heave and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman of the crew, are these men as skilled as those that you'd hire if you wanted to build? I know indeed, just common laborers are all I need. I can tear down as much in a day or two as it would take skilled men a year to do. And when I thought as I went my way, just which of these two roles I'm trying to play? Have I walked life's road with care, measuring each deed with rule and square? Or am I one of those who roam the town, content with the labor of tearing down? The words that we speak can build up or they can tear down. Part of being transformed is that we replace the corrupt, the attitude, the actions, and the habit of corrupt speech with Christ-like words. We, we stop tearing down and we work to build up. And then the final is that we replace resisting the Spirit following the Spirit. Verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The idea of being sealed by the Spirit is that we were given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on all that God would give us on the day that we were saved. This is something he, he mentioned earlier in the book. But I want us to focus on the idea of, of grieving the Spirit. I think the New Living Translation says bring sorrow to the Spirit by the way that we live. Now, how do, we, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do we bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what I've realized. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is always working in us to help us do what's right. If we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The Spirit, lust against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit, the contrary to one another. The Holy Spirit of God is always at work in our lives. It's always trying to get us to do what's right. The Holy Spirit is always at work trying to transform us that we'd be more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always working in us to try to get us to replace lies with truth. The Holy Spirit is always at work in us trying to get us to replace anger with forgiveness. The Holy Spirit is always at work trying to get us to replace stealing with generosity, replace corrupt speech with, hate, with helpful speech. And the Holy Spirit is always working in us. So here's how we grieve the Spirit. We resist the Spirit and we lie instead of tell the truth. We resist the Spirit and we act in our anger rather than forgive. We resist the Spirit and we act in stealing or, or greed instead of generosity. We, we go ahead and say the corrupt thing rather than working to build up. See, a part of the way this happens in growth is it's not just you and I that make the changes. I mean... We can't turn over a new leaf and fix all the problems in our lives. Our problems run much deeper than, than a new leaf can fix. We desperately need transformation by the Spirit of God. We need God to work in our lives. And so God is always at work through His Spirit saying, replace this with that. Do this and not that. And the way transformation occurs is when I recognize the Spirit's leading and I surrender to it. And I speak in truth instead of a lie. I act self-controlled instead of act in anger. I forgive instead of holding a grudge. And if we ever want to be transformed, this is what we have to do. Right? It is never going to get better on its own. For some of us, we live in such a way and we have this idea that maybe just one day... I'll wake up and everything will be better. One day I'll wake up and my temper will be under control. One day I'll wake up and, and I won't have the desire to say hateful things. And, and I won't have the, the greed, won't have such a pull in my heart. But I want you to know that day will never actually happen. The old man grows corrupt according to the set of lust. It just, it just gets worse and worse. And the longer you passively hope it gets better, the worse it gets. There has to come a time where you begin to fight the good fight of faith. There has to come a time where you stop resisting the Spirit and you start surrendering to the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying it'll be easy. 
And I'm not saying that you say today, I'm going to I'm going to stop resisting the spirit and I'm going to start surrendering to the spirit and doing what he wants me to do. And then tomorrow you're going to get everything just right. (laughs) That ain't going to happen. What I'm saying is without that decision of faith and the continual effort that follows, nothing will ever change in your life. Change, transformation takes time. Habits and attitudes and actions, the longer you've done them, the deeper they are in your heart and in your life, the more difficult it is to overcome them. But I want you to know you can overcome them. Everything there is doable. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, absolutely can do everything on that list. Because the Spirit of God is at work in us, enabling us to do it. You can do it. I can do it. There has to come a point where we stop saying it's just the way I am. There has to come a point where we stop saying, "Ah, I've been this way a long time. There has to come a point where we stop saying everybody has to have a bad habit. There has to come a time where we say, I can be who God wants me to be. I can do what God wants me to do. The Spirit of God will always enable me to do the will of God. If I will replace resisting the Spirit with following the Spirit. That is how transformation occurs. So let me ask you today. As you look at your life from last Sunday until today. Does it show you're walking in the old way of life or the new way of life? Does it show anger or self-control and forgiveness? Does it show corrupt speech or speech that builds up and helps? Does it show greed or generosity? Does it show lies or does it show the truth? The way we live says a lot. About what's going on in our lives. And if the way we live says we're living in the old way. Then right now today. You choose. To put off the old. And put on the new. You choose to replace. What's wrong with what's right. You choose. To surrender to the spirit of God. To be transformed and be like the son of God. Let's all stand as our musicians come forward.